in part three of Tell Me All Your Thoughts on God, A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when a person thinks about God is the single most important thing about them. He went on to say, from what comes to mind when a person thinks of God, you can determine with some degree of precision the spiritual future of that person. So Tozer, Tozer actually believed that the spiritual future of a person is going to be dictated by their thoughts on God. And I agree. So our whole desire in this series is to come to know God for who he really is in himself, as, as closely as is possible. Of course, we know that God is God. God is actually incomprehensible. We can never know exactly everything about God, because the only person that could really understand everything about God is God. If someone else was able to comprehend God, that, that would be you know, another God-like figure, and there's only one God. So God knows himself intimately, but he's revealed himself to his people. God is a self-revelatory God. He's always been about revealing himself to his people, to the point that he's even made human beings in his image. Uh, but even though we're made in the image of God, of course, we are not God. <laughs> we're made in his image, but we are not God. But there's things we can learn about God, and God has made things known about him. So today we are talking about another aspect of God, which is the mystery, the trinity, and the unity of God. And this is a, a topic that is very interesting, I think very important, and I'm looking forward to thinking about it with you today. So if you'll join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I lift up this service to you. I pray that we would understand the Scripture for what it's saying, that we would allow the Scripture to judge us and us not judge the Scripture once we understand what it means, and that we would hear your voice, that we would be in awe of you, that we would think right thoughts about you, and that we would draw near to you. Uh, we thank you for the reality of your presence in the world. We thank you for the reality of, of, of Jesus when you came and revealed yourself to us in, in, in this way that we could understand. It's such an amazing gift that you've given us. And we praise your name for it. Uh, give me wisdom as I share what you've placed on my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was a little surprised about two years ago. I can remember exactly where I was. Usually uh, when I read kids' books to Olivia or Elias, I just hate them. They're terrible. There's so many awful kids' books out there. and you, you, get, you get through them, and they want to read the one about the princess and the princess party, you know, over and over again. It's just not very good literature, not very good artwork. I'm like, this is not good. So recently I've been reading different stuff to them that I'm also interested in, which is very selfish. <laughs> so... So I'm reading like, a, you know, well, stuff they, they can grasp, but still. At any rate, usually children's books don't really get me too excited. However, I was very surprised when uh, Olivia chose a book that was like a Dr. Seuss learning book. They have a series of these. They're, they're in rhyme, and they teach about science and different things that you learn in school. And it's all, it all rhymes together, and there's beautiful artwork. And I love Dr. Seuss. He's great. That's good for adults, too. So I was very surprised as I was reading this book, and the book was about butterflies. And I was reading along, reading along. All of a sudden, what I was reading was so beautiful that I just got choked up, and I couldn't barely finish. And Olivia's like, well, what, what's... I wasn't even in a sappy mood or anything, you know? I was expecting to hate the book. And what it said was, these butterflies migrate to like Mexico, to a certain place, into this certain tree, like 
thousands of miles. And they lay their eggs, and then they die. Their eggs hatch, and they fly back. And no one knows how they do it. It said, and it, there's a rhyme in the book, but it said, and sci- scientists have no idea how, the, how this happens. And I was so in awe of that. It used to be in the ancient world before science that uh, the world was a much more wondrous place because we didn't know anything about anything. But I, it's actually unusual now to actually hear a book say, no one can explain it. And that sense of mystery is rejuvenated in your heart. In a, in a culture that explains everything away as if everything can be understood through empiricism, through your five senses. It's, it's really surprising. And it just struck me how beautiful this story was. And it got me interested in general in this topic of migration. So here we go. That's what we're talking about today, migration. I have no idea how much of this I'm going to read, but I just wanted to read, to you, read you a little bit of amazing stuff about migration. The world record for animal migration is held by a bird called the called the Arctic Tern. Its journey, starting within weeks of hatching, will take it from northern Greenland down the western coasts of Europe and Africa, across the Antarctic Ocean to the South Pole, a total of around 11,000 miles. Less than a year later, it will cover the same distance again on its return journey home. But it's not only the mileage that's impressive. How do English swallows know the route to their winter feeding grounds in South Africa, 6,000 miles away? and then manage to find their way back again in spring to breed, often to the very same place where they nested in the previous year. This stuff is just mind-blowing to me. And this is not some kind of Christian, believe the Bible article. This is a scientific journal. The biologist Rupert Sheldrake, who deals with this and other questions in his book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home and Other Unexplained Powers of Animals. That's That's a long title for a book not pithy, Uh, gives another example to illustrate the extraordinary navigational skills of migratory animals. Quote, baby green turtles that hatched on the beaches of Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic find their way across the ocean to their ancestral feeding grounds off the Brazilian coast. Years later, when the time comes for them to lay their eggs, they then make their way back to Ascension Island, only six miles across and over 1,400 miles away, with no land in between. Praise God. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Their ability to navigate, he says, is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of biology. It actually talks about the butterflies um, and, and, and their migratory habits, actually even more impressive than what I read in that children's book. But they have different hypotheses of how this happens. The hypothesis currently adapted by biologists is that the migrating animals have an innate genetic program which directs them along a certain route, using the orientation provided by the sun, moon, and stars, a magnetic sense, and in some cases, the sense of smell. Although there have been successful experiments to show that some of these factors play a part, the theory is not satisfactory. One of its flaws is that the heavenly bodies are not always visible, either due to cloudy conditions or in the case of fish or marine turtles, because they are underwater. Another is that the Earth's magnetic field is constantly varying and therefore cannot be relied upon. As for the sense of smell, this may help when an animal is nearing its destination, as is the case of Atlantic salmon, but birds like the albatross do not follow a set route and are able to return home from anywhere from anywhere. It's just amazing to me. Like many of these animals, they just seem to know the way intuitively. So then they propose, as, as you, as you, if you read journals, different theories that are, are out there. One is called goal-oriented, where the destination is pulling, somehow, these animals towards it. And they're saying that's not really terribly helpful, but it's interesting. And I find this very interesting. I really like science stuff. But what it kind of ends with is 
this theory of morphic resonance, which is the, the old idea of there's a group soul that they've tapped into like their ancestors and they like have this group soul that directs them around. So we're, getting, we're, we're moving away from science into the realm of like, we're basically saying, empirically speaking, we can prove with, with our five senses that there's a group soul that's guiding these animals around. And it's, no one knows. It's a mystery. Uh, and so it's become a poetic and imaginative exercise to understand how this works. I mean, think about this. This is amazing stuff. And so I, I was just more and more in awe of the creation as I considered this article. And like I said, usually everything's explained so carefully that you don't even have room for mystery when you're reading and, and, and studying. Today, you know, they used to think that atoms were the smallest part of matter, right? But now they're looking into the atom and they found the quarks and the, the leptons. Is that right, Brad? Yeah, he knows. He's all about quarks and leptons. But they keep on like getting better microscopes and magnifying further, and they just can't seem to get to the end of this thing. It seems to be almost as eternal as, the God, as God himself. But we all have this idea in our mind, with enough time, with enough technology, we can get the answers to empirically prove everything. Eventually, there's no room for mystery. But people that are very intelligent and work in the scientific field uh, will admit that we just haven't gotten to the end of it, and there's some things we just don't know. Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, and this is a book I'm reading over vacation, it's only like 200 pages long. So it's, it's a doable book that he, he, he wrote. He said, even if there is only one possible unified theory of the universe, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science, of constructing a mathematical model, cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother existing? He's just very honest. You know, he's a smart dude, right? He says, uh, then we shall, you know, talking about the comprehensive theory of the universe, then we shall be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Scientists, at the end of the day, they just, as great as science is, as great as empiricism is, I love science, I think science is such a gift. At the end of the day, we, science is like a boat floating on a sea of mystery. And really, as a father of small children, all it really takes is a two-year-old to unravel everything. What? Why? Why? What? Why? What? 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 Why? And eventually, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> They're like little lawyers, you know? So, I find it very interesting. I, I, I have a lot of conversations where people say, say things like, uh, I believe in God, but I'm really into science. And it's like this thing like, oh, it's so hard because I, I believe in God, but I believe in science. And, and I'm like, well, they're not really mutually exclusive. Uh, it's just that I mean, there's so much mystery in science that you certainly can have a belief in God and a belief in science at the same time. Uh, but what you have to understand is that this whole scientific thing that we have is just floating on mystery. I mean, we can't explain hardly anything that we do from day to day, really. We just do it. We believe it. Uh, there's, there's so much mystery in the universe, so much yet to be discovered. There's so much depth. And, you know, my answer for where everything has come from is God. God. I think God 
created, literally created the universe. And I think that he holds it all, everything together by his powerful word, which is G- Jesus. That's my answer. And to blow, to blow you know, our minds further, we always look at something like God or, or, or an animal or a person, and we, we ask the question, what is the origin of that thing? You know? What's the origin? Where did it come from? Where did it proceed from? And, and the thing about God is, God has no origin. God is self-existent, and God is eternal. God has always been and always will be. He's the first and the last. He's uncreated. So, so we follow this God who has no beginning and no end beyond time and space, who set things in motion. And when I look at science, when I look at these different things I've investigated, it just makes me worship. It just makes me worship God for how amazing he is. Looking out at the stars, considering that like these balls of light that we see it's like pinpricks, in the, in the panorama of the sky, or like our sun, but far away. Lots of them, you know. I, I was listening to the radio. I think I've shared this before, so forgive me. But uh, I was listening to NPR, and they do the Earth Watch stuff. I love those science things. And they were talking about how, as far as they can tell, they've been measuring and doing all the amazing stuff that they can do. The universe is just expanding. There's no bottlenecking happening. It just goes on and on and on, just like the God who created it. Just like I'm, I'm convinced that the more we magnify the atom, we still don't know why the, why the proton is like way heavier than the electron. They don't even know stuff about basic building blocks of the atom yet. But the more you magnify, the more you'll see there's more and more and more. It's like a little galaxy inside a molecule, uh, an atom. <laughs> there's so much mystery, and it, it smacks of the God that created it. Eternal, deep, um, mysterious, yet revealing itself little by little as you seek after it. Today we're speaking about a profound mystery, the Trinity. Most of us, the Trinity is, God is three persons in one, and God works in unity with God's self. And we say, you can't be three in one. That's not logical. That doesn't hold up to empiricism. There's nothing like that in the world. Well, there's lots of things in the world that are mysterious. There's lots of things that we have no answer for. And things about God, thoughts about God, who God is, tend to fall into this category of blowing your mind. Yet, it is the consistent teaching of the Bible that God is Trinity. God is three persons in one, working in unity. And we've had like all these controversies in church history of people trying to figure out how it works, and basically everyone becomes a crazy heretic. They're like, no, you're a heretic, you're wrong, anathema, that's bad. Because no matter how people try to describe it, it's beyond description, it's beyond comprehension. It is a truth from God for the soul. But it is darkness to the intellect in many ways. It's something that, it's, it's, it's something that can cause you to worship. It can make you frustrated. It can make you feel like your head's going to fall off because it's so incomprehensible. But it's the truth of Scripture. And every person, every generation that has upheld the doctrine of the Trinity and who God is in this way and held it in that tension of mystery and believed in it and looked into it has been blessed. This is the truth of God. I started getting interested in the Trinity for a very... Um, I, ha- I had this kind of interesting interaction with some, some theologians who are very academic, very smart theologians. I really have enjoyed a lot of the work they've done in this particular area. And they were talking about 
uh, the Trinity, and I realized from what they were saying that they did not understand the Trinity, as I understand it, as I think the Bible teaches it. Now, what it was, was they said, here we have God, the Father. God, the Father, it has anger, wrath towards sin, towards covenant breaking. And so, what did God do? He sent his son to die on the cross as a substitute for us to take the punishment of God's wrath and anger on himself and to die for our sins and rise again. And so these theologians said, doesn't that make God a cosmic child abuser? Does that make God a chi- child abuser that he, he sent down his whipping boy, Jesus? He's like, I'm going to just take out my wrath on that guy. To this group of theologians, this is an unacceptable theory of how we, our sins are atoned for because it represents a God that none of us would want to follow, a God that is beating on his own son for our sins. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the Trinity because Jesus is God. I'll just share it with you. This is very touching for me to, to talk about. God had a problem. He, he desired a people for himself. God desired a people for himself. He created the world, made a beautiful garden. People chose to rebel against God and sin from the time of Adam until the present day and broke the covenant time and time again. For those of you reading through the Old Testament, you know this uh, with us as a church. And basically, it was just a serious problem. People could never get it right. People could never follow him wholeheartedly. They were always just half-hearted at best and completely opposed to him at worst, completely immersed in darkness. So God had a problem. He wanted the people for himself, but, the, but he is a holy God, and the people that he was calling to himself were unwilling to walk in his ways in any degree, really, except for a few notable exceptions. But God loved people. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. While we were still in our sins, while we were still enemies of God, God sent Jesus, who was God, to earth. God, in Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross, and God took on God's self the just penalty and judgment from God for our sins. God inflicted on his own self. Because of God's sense of justice, because of God's righteousness and holiness, he needed there to be an atonement for sin. And he made himself the atonement for sin. So it wasn't God the Father sitting up on his throne in heaven, taking out his wrath on on little boy Jesus, It was God, in love for his people, coming to earth and taking his wrath upon himself. This is the picture of self-giving love. This is something that is so beautiful that if you missed it, uh, that would be heartbreaking. And what if you have that perspective? God must be so aloof. Look at what he, you know, look how he, if you have the wrong idea about the Trinity, you look at that and you think the same thing as these, these people. You'd think, you know, he's a cosmic child abuser. But when you look at it correctly, that Jesus was God, all of a sudden, love fills your heart. You think, wow, God took it upon God's self to take God's wrath on God's self on my behalf so that I might have a relationship with God because God wants to be in a relationship with me so badly. That's awesome. It's awesome. So having a, it might seem like something that is irrelevant to us, this Trinity talk, but let me tell you, it's relevant because we're going to be reading the book of Acts in the fall. It's sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? God. 
we're reading through the Gospels right now. We're reading about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God. If you think of them as different people, or you have this dichotomy of Old Testament God, mean, New Testament God, nice, Holy Spirit, even nicer. That's, it's incorrect. It's all God. Now, granted, God is more understandable when we see him in Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's, under, he's, he's comprehensible to us to look at another person, you know, but it's God. It's God. N.T. Wright is one of my very favorite uh, theologians, and he said something that I've repeated here several times. He thinks about the Trinity in a cool way. He said, to, to prevent confusion, we have God, God Almighty, yud heh vav I am. Then we have God's second self, Jesus Christ. It's God. It's just God's second self. So they're not separated. They're, 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 they're in complete unity and in Congress with one another in all things. And then, God's third self, the, tr- the Holy Spirit. So this is a very helpful way for us to have a right view of something that is incomprehensible to our intellect, that God is three in one, and that God does all things in unity with God's self. So this is a very important concept to hammer out. And I just want to show you some, just a, a quick survey of Scripture to show you how cool this is that the Trinity does all things together in unity. So, in creation, I'm going to read to you. Genesis 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, so we have God, right? Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Two members of the Trinity right there. But then in John 1, 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word... The Word is Jesus Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The whole Trinity did creation. Jesus was the Word of God that spoke creation into existence. Granted, this is very mysterious stuff. I'm just showing you the tension of Scripture so you can hold this, this view. Colossians 1, 15-16. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's all, the Trinity in creation. In incarnation, Luke one thirty five. the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born with you will be called the Son of God. The Trinity. At Jesus' baptism, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water, At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. The Trinity, right there. I know I'm a nerd, okay? I get it. I think this is so cool. It makes me worship. In the atonement, we talked about God paying for our sins. says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so we can serve the living God. All three of the Trinity, right there. All three of them working in Congress and unity. In resurrection, Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So God raised Jesus to life, right? Then John 10 says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. So Jesus is saying, actually, he, actually it was him. He laid down his life, to, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And then, in Romans 8, 11, it says, that if the same Spirit that raised Christ to life lives in you, the Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies 
The Holy Spirit raised Jesus to life. So did all three of them do it? Yes, because all three of them are God. And this is really cool to me. In, uh, in, in salvation, we baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So there's the Trinity right there. Uh, but in 1 Peter 1, 2, to God's people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit who will be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be upon you. Trinity. This is an important doctrine for us to take hold of. The indwelling of the Christian soul. John 14, 15 to 23. If you love me, Jesus says this, you will keep my commands. I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The, word cannot, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Trinity. When we talk about the Holy Ghost... People say that in Pentecostal churches. The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit. At best, it might make us feel creeped out. Think about Halloween. A spirit, a ghost. It's God. It's Jesus. It's not scary. The Holy Ghost that indwells you is God and Jesus. And when you look at Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus who spoke intimately with his disciples, who was gracious and kind and spoke truth and did healings and miracles, that's the Holy Spirit. Nothing to be scared of. And it dwells within you. It indwells people who believe in God. The Trinity dwells within you. So these are just some really pertinent examples at pivotal moments, but the Trinity is taught all through the Scripture. And, uh, and so I guess the only conclusion I have is a profound mystery, a truth for the believing soul, but darkness to the intellect in many ways. The Holy Spirit is both God and Jesus. Take notes. Jesus is both God and the Holy Spirit. God is both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That's the, that's, the trinity. that's the Trinity. And the same Spirit that raised Christ to life lives in you. God, who created the universe. God, who loved you so much that he, that, that he took the wrath and punishment for sin on God's own self so that you could have a relationship with God. It sounds very strange. That God lives within you by His Spirit. As we come to the table... Romans 8, 31 to 39. What shall we say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, you could say self there, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all too lofty for words. It's beyond our frail human comprehension. But we receive the truth and we experience the reality of it through faith in Jesus. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and distribute all of the elements. We are going to reflect today on the great love of God that God took upon himself um, the, the, the punishment due for our sin so that we could be in relationship with him. And he has indwelled us by his spirit and promised that the same spirit that brought Jesus Christ to life 
lives in us and will give life to us as well. So receive the body and blood as the gift of God for you, the self-giving love of the Father for his people, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, blessed unity. Lord, we thank you for giving your life for our sins out of love for us, that we might become for you a people, your people. Help us to live up to the calling that we've received in Christ, which is a free gift to us. We receive remembrance of your broken body and remembrance of your shed blood. And we remember in all of this your great love. Please take of the bread and the juice.